the Maui fires uh, that erupted across the island last Tuesdays, uh, last Tuesday, has by now impressed itself as the deadliest in the United States in more than a century. Uh, with a death toll of over 100, with over a thousand people still unaccounted for, it's already uh, surpassed even the 2018 campfire in Paradise, California, which killed 85 people. That's an enormous catastrophe. And what caused it? What brought it about? Well, listen to the response of Josh Green, the governor of Hawaii, to that question. He said, the fire is a product, in my estimation, of certainly global warming. Combined with drought, combined with a superstorm, where we had a hurricane offshore several hundred miles, still generating large Wind. So according to the state, global warming is really the ultimate cause behind this great tragedy. Now that's obviously convenient because it means that the government gets to take the part of the savior here. The state gets to save us from further destructions like this one. So it's a convenient lie designed to make powerful men still more powerful. And our nation believes it because it is godless on the one hand and it is confused on the other. Now, we have been studying the prophecy of Joel. And one of the things that we've noted as we've gone through this book is that uh, like our nation, the Judeans were unable to really make sense of an epic catastrophe that they had been inflicted with. They had been victims of a locust invasion, droughts and fires, and they did not really understand why. But the man of God, Joel, uh, he has come uh, because of God's ordination to help them make sense of what is going on. He's bringing them the truth. He's telling them why this bad thing had happened. And we can summarize his message like this. God holds every nation to account for its sins. The destruction that you just saw, Judeans, is only a foretaste of the coming judgment of God on your nation because of your sins. And it's a preview. If you want to escape the real judgment to come, a more awful outpouring of wrath, then you need to repent. You need to repent. He is calling the nation to repent in light of what has just happened and what is going to happen as that event itself has just uh, uh, foreshadowed. So if you think about it, of course, Joel is a preacher of repentance. He is like Jesus who, when he was told about the Galileans uh, that Pilate had killed and about the victims uh, of the accidental fall of the tower that was in Siloam, he said the following. He said this, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That was the, those were the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when tragedy strikes, the calling of the people of God is to say, repent, repent. 
or else you yourself will be judged. Now, in Joel chapter 2, verse 1, where we are, we actually find the way or the manner in which that call to repentance needs to be issued by God's people. It needs to be issued, on the one hand, passionately, and on the other hand, urgently. Look at uh, Joel chapter 2, verse 1. He says there, Blow a trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. Uh, The word for trumpet here is... Uh, refers to a, uh, what we translate sometimes as a cornet. Uh, this would have been a long-sounding uh, instrument made, um, for the most part, in most cases, of the horns of a ram. And the priests used to use these horns uh, for the approaching of religious festivals. But beyond that, uh, trumpet blasts were used as war signals. They warned of imminent danger. And when that was uh, the purpose of the trumpet blast... That blast was accompanied by the sounding of an alarm. Uh, That's the case here. Notice it says, Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. That verb that is translated here as sound an alarm is actually just one word. And it has a root that means to break. And that was uh, taken figuratively for shouting so loud that you split someone's ear. Uh, And the the literature of the prophets here... Uh, in it, preaching is compared to the sounding of trumpets and raising an alarm. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 3 and 7 says, If a watchman sees the, the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, or sounds an alarm, then if anyone hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. So you, son of man, he tells Ezekiel, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. And Hosea chapter 8 verse 1 says, Put the trumpet to your lips like an eagle. The enemy comes against the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant And rebelled against my law. So the preaching of the prophets is compared in the literature of the prophets as the sounding forth of a trumpet blast and the sounding of of a piercing alarm. That means, of course, that God's people, as they call others to repentance, have to be Passion. They, they have to be passionate. They have to engage all of their beings in what they are doing. As they call sinners to flee from the wrath to come. Jeremiah chapter 22 verse 20. Go up to Lebanon and cry out and lift up your voice in Bashan. Cry out from Abarim for all your lovers. All your lovers have been crushed. And Acts uh, chapter 2 verse 14. It says of Peter that when he preached his first sermon at Pentecost, it says that he took his stand, and then it says that he raised his voice, and that he declared to the people of God that they had crucified the Messiah. So the preaching of repentance, again, is passionate preaching, and it is one that doesn't shy away even from instilling fear in the listener. Notice uh, the second sentence here of verse 1. It says, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. Uh, The trembling here, of course, is trembling from terror. When God speaks, He demands that His his hearers should tremble. Psalm 119 verse 120, My flesh trembles 
for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. In Isaiah chapter 66 verse 2, But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. In Jeremiah chapter 5 verses 22 to 24, Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble in my presence? For I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea, an eternal decree, so it shall not cross over it. Though the waves toss, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot cross over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and departed. They do not say in their heart, Let us now fear the Lord our God, who gives rain in its seasons, both the autumn rain and the spring rain, who keeps for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. So trembling again is the effect that the preaching of repentance looks for. And that is, again, what makes for passionate preaching. You can't be half asleep when you go out and you proclaim the message of the gospel. When you speak to others about the eternal judgment that is coming, you are seeking to even make them tremble. You've engaged all of your being in warning the sinner. Now, beyond that, you also have to be urgent in your preaching or earnest. Notice Joel says here that all the inhabitants of the land, this is uh, chapter 2 verse 1, Tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, surely it is near. The day of the Lord again was to be time of judgment for the wicked. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 12 says, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. And Obadiah 15 says, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations, As you have done, it shall be done to you. So there's a principle of retribution there. As you have done, so it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own heads. And Malachi chapter 4 verse 1 says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. So this again, the day of the Lord would be a time of judgment and a time for the people of God to want to escape. And according to Joel here, it is near, it is coming. The expression that is translated here as near sometimes is translated as at hand. So the preaching here is one of imminent judgment it is urgent the people need to hear that this could happen at any second by the way the new testament also speaks of the coming day of the lord in the same terms Uh, it wants us to understand that at any moment judgment can arrive first thessalonians 5 2 for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the lord will come like a thief in the night and james chapter 5 verse 8 you also be patient Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And 1 Peter 4, 7, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So the preaching of repentance is urgent. The day of the Lord is at hand. You're calling people to turn from their sins immediately. Give them up today. Drop them this minute. Run to safety now. Judgment could break at any time. Second, Now let's look at the content of the preaching of repentance. So uh, we've said that you have to preach it 
passionately and urgently. Let's look at the content itself. What it is that you are saying when, you call, when you're calling sinners to flee from the wrath to come. And the first thing that you have to know here from our text is that the divine judgment is absolute. No one who is on the receiving end of it can actually escape it. Uh, look at uh, verses 2 and 3. He says here, A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, as the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. Now again, the, the, the prophet here, he's actually appealing to uh, what the people had just experienced, what they had just lived through, to explain a judgment to come that could come at any second. They had lived through a day of darkness and gloom. We said that locusts, they travel by the millions together. They jump up and open their wings and they fly so close to each other that they can even darken the sun behind them. And so as they're going, the sky is literally obscured because there's so many. So they make darkness stretch over a place the way that um, the shadow of a mountain falls over a valley as the sun falls. And they make their way into that place. As they make their way into that place, as they would have made their way into Jerusalem, they would have sounded like an entire army in secret, moving in secret. It would have been a muffled, but, but a terrible noise. And what the Judeans themselves had experienced was, was uh, augmented. Uh, chapter 1 verse 4 makes it clear that this had even just been a unique invasion of locusts. They had been unlike uh, even the bad invasions themselves. This was unique because there had not just been one or two kinds of locusts, but four that had come one after the other upon the land. And because of that, Joel says that there has been, any, there has been anything like it here. Uh, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. So this again had been a catastrophe of historic proportions. Whatever beautiful spring sceneries there might have been in the kingdom of Judah, those sceneries quickly turn into pictures of a dreadful winter after the locusts were done with it. Every plant and tree had been stripped of its leaves and they were reduced to naked boughs and stems. So you could compare this whole thing really to a, a, a uh, a fire, a wildfire. And Joel did. He says here, A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. Uh, that, that translation here, uh, or that, that expression here, escape, also means deliverance. So he's saying that nothing was delivered from the power of this invasion. Not a single plant had even been spared. And that is true of the coming day of the Lord as well. There will be no wicked man or woman who goes unpunished. None who uh, leave Jesus or who refuse Jesus 
will go unpunished. Sinner, sinners like to flatter themselves, and this is going to be true of all of them. They like to flatter themselves that God is somehow going to deal differently with them. They think that I will get a pass. Maybe this other person will not. Maybe the really bad ones will not. The Hitlers of the world, they will not get a pass. But surely I will because God understands me. He knows that I am very sincere. He knows that I mean well. And He knows that even when I do things that displease Him, that I don't like that doing what I'm doing. So because of that, He sees me inwardly as a good person. Uh, but Scripture actually makes it clear that unless you have the righteousness of the very Son of God imputed to your account, you cannot escape the judgment to come. His judgment is absolute. It leaves no one behind. And beyond that, it is also terrifying. Read uh, verses 4 through 10 with me. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses. So they run. With a noise as of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for battle. Before them the people are in anguish, all faces turn pale. They run like mighty men, they climb the wall like soldiers, and they each march in line, nor do they deviate from their paths. They do not crowd each other. They march everyone in his path. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. Before them, the earth quakes. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. Um, that, that verb that is translated here in verse 6 as to be in anguish, it's actually the same verb that we translate as uh, being in labor or suffering labor pains. Isaiah chapter 26 verse 17 says, As the pregnant woman approaches the time to give birth, she rises in uh, or is in agony and cries in her labor pains. Thus, we were, we were before you, O Lord. So the point here is that the people are in utter terror. They are even physically hurting because of the fear that they have. It's a, it's a physiological response. It says, all faces turn pale. This is, of course, what happened in the city of Nineveh when God finally came in vengeance to exact vengeance and all the... The wrong that they had committed. It says in Nahum chapter 2 verse 10. Desolate. Desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Same expression as in here. That's what happened when judgment comes very suddenly on, upon a people. Uh, in the case here the Judeans. They could see the locusts coming. And they understood that this was unstoppable. That they were already seeing it and it was too late. They had nowhere to go. And so their complexions grew pale. Uh, the men of antiquity, actually, when they saw these massive locusts coming, these invasions, they would, would, would actually dig trenches and they would start fires. 
but this one would have been so massive that the fires would have killed only a fraction of all of the locusts and then even the trenches would have gotten filled and then more locusts would have come after that behind them. So they make their way actually into the city and Joel even describes how they would even enter into the the windows like thieves. There was no way of keeping these locusts out. And this was so bad that Joel compared the invasion to even an earthquake as they they rattled your houses and everywhere you were, everything was shaken. It was like an earthquake and even an eclipse because of course everything has been darkened. The point of all of this is to instill into the Judeans a, a sense of how terrifying, uh, from that picture, how terrifying the actual judgment of God will be when it comes suddenly. Uh, Shasta and I were, were talking uh, recently about these fires in Maui the, this last week, and one of the things uh, that she pointed out is that as she go, went through the accounts of some of the survivors, one of the things that stuck out is that they kept feeling like what had come upon them was a dream, that they couldn't, that it didn't feel like reality, that all of a sudden things would just grow dark and there would be fire everywhere and it felt as though they, they could not see that coming and, and they, they weren't living in reality. But that's exactly what happens when judgment comes. It's terrifying. Matthew chapter 24 verses 37 through 39. For as were the days of Noah, Jesus said, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the, the, the coming of the Son of Man. And First Thessalonians 5.3 says, While they were saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. So the day of the Lord, again, is sudden, it is terrifying, and it is also unbearable. Look at verse 11. It says, The Lord utters His voice before His, ar uh, his army. Surely His camp, or His army, is very great. For strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed very great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So notice, Joel is comparing here uh, uh, the Lord to a general or a captain that is uttering a, a, a shout of war as he is coming into a city. Joel wanted the people of Judah to see the locusts as God's own army. God had brought it. After all, they can't even direct their own flight. They just open their wings and they're at the mercy of, of providence wherever the wind is blowing. And so there's a picture there of God bringing this army into the city. And He is shouting behind them. Uh, this was His attack on the people. It's not global warming. This is God Himself. He is involved in this attack and he will be involved in the day of the Lord in the future and he will be involved with all of his might here God is going to exert a hundred percent of his being in this judgment and the following judgment because God doesn't do anything in in, in with a, ha a half heart there is no such a thing as a half-hearted effort with God he is Full of zeal when he makes war with the wicked. 
Uh, Isaiah chapter 42 verse 13 says, The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemy. So when God comes in to destroy, he comes in with all of his might. He is pure act. There's nothing passive about God. The exercise of his wrath is actually his whole being. It's not as though God, half of him is uh, wanting to inflict destruction, but the other half is it doesn't want to do it. And so he is, as it were, conflicted. No, the wrath of God is actually the same thing as saying God himself. It's identical with his being. In the same way that we say that God is light and that God is love, so do we say that God is wrath or that God is a consuming fire. He is 100% light. He is 100% love. He is 100% wrath. What makes a difference rather is where you stand with respect to God. This is why Psalm 18.26 says, With the pure you show yourself pure, and with the crooked you show yourself astute. In other words, God can be two different things to Two different people at the same time. To one, he can be a hundred percent wrath, and to the other, he can be a hundred percent love. And whether he is one or the other, to you, he is that with all of his being. Now that means that the judgment here, of course, is unbearable. The judgment of the day of the Lord is unbearable. Joel says, The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So he has a sense of wonder here. Uh, I mean, uh, we are talking about the whole being of God, again, involved in this judgment. And that sense of wonder is one that comes up repeatedly throughout the scriptures. Nahum 1.6, who can stand before his in, in indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by him. Malachi chapter 3 verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And uh, Revelation chapter 6 verses 15 and 16. You might remember that text where it says that all of the men of the world, the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for their day, their great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to, to stand? This is the day of the Lord when it finally breaks out in this world, when it finally comes in the tribulation period. So there's a sense of awe here at the judgment of God. The Bible presents it as unbearable. It's absolute, it's terrifying, it's unbearable. And you have to say that to the sinner. You, you have to confront the sinner w with that so that you can tell the sinner, you don't want to be there. You don't want to be there. Uh, this is, of course, very far from the other strategy that's popular today, which is God loves you and He has a wonderful plan for your life. This is completely the opposite of that, but it is what the Bible actually says. Now, let's talk about the sinner uh, or how the sinner can avoid that judgment that is coming. As you're, as you're warning a sinner about the wrath to come, what do you tell the sinner? How can he avoid that wrath? And the answer 
I'll put it this way, there are many ways of putting it. Turning to God for salvation from the, from the heart with all of your being. Turning to God Himself for salvation from judgment from the heart and with all of your being. Look at uh, verses 12 through 14. Joel says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning and rend your hearts and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Uh, the word that is that we translate as return here is the same word that we translate elsewhere as repent. But this is what repentance is. It's a turning back to God. Sin creates a separation between God and man. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. So sin creates a chasm between God and man. And the response to that on your part should be to repent. He says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart. So go back to God. But notice, you have to do that with all of your heart. Return to me with all of your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning. Uh, and rend your heart and not your garment, it says here. The, the verb to rend literally means to rip into pieces. And the word for garment is taken from a root that means to cover. So it was applied basically to any kind of clothing, but more often than not, it referred to the outer robes that uh, men would put, uh, would cover themselves with. And when they were mourning, of course, we know this from the scriptures, when they were, when they would uh, be mourning, they would tear these robes as a sign of the fact that they were mourning. But ironically, the Judeans here, they were doing the signs, evidently, without having the thing that it signified. Uh, they, were, they, they were rending their garments without rending their hearts. Because it says here, they were rending their garments uh, and they did not have a broken heart. They did not have a contrite spirit. But God, who sees and knows all things, uh, all, all things, men could see the, the, the broken garment, as it were, uh, the ripped up piece of clothing. But God could look inside and see that the heart itself had not been broken. And He wanted them to stop this. He wanted them to break their own hearts. So there is a kind of repentance, if you think about it, uh, that is not true repentance. We call that penance or, or a sorrow that leads to life. But we, we also talk about penance. Uh, you do some external action without actually having the, the, the meaning of that action behind it. Uh, that it's a transaction. It's uh, what... Roman Catholic religion is based on. When you commit some sin, you go to confession and you're told to pray a certain prayer or to perform some act of mercy. It's just a payment. And in fact, in the days leading up to the Protestant Reformation, you could actually just make the payment and you could buy an indulgence and get yourself 
some forgiveness from God and you were good to go. And that uh, part of that is what brought uh, the Protestant Reformation. But you could be forgiven for a price. Now, we hear that and we say, wow, that's, that's, very, that's very crude. That, that is uh, not, not a, a nice thing to have. It's very obviously bad. But if you think about it, people still act that way even today. Uh, you think that you can pay for your sins by some action that you might engage in. You feel bad over something you've done and you say, well, yes, I understand. This is bad. But I actually am doing very well in every other respect in my life. And uh, every, other, every other area, I'm serving God and I'm still serving Him. And I'm serving Him more. And I've done a lot of good things. And I will continue to do other good things. So I'm sure that He's just going to overlook this one little sin that I'm engaging in. And it's going to be okay. That's actually the same set of assumptions that the people who pay for an indulgence actually have when they pay for their indulgence. It's no difference. But repentance, on the other hand, that is something else. Biblical repentance is actually rooted not so much in an actions, not so much, uh, not so much in doing penance, but rather in a state. In a state. It's having a broken heart. Not merely broken clothes, so to speak. And having a broken heart toward a person. Notice the text says, Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. So true repentance is coming back to God. It's coming back so that He might cover you your sins. So that He might cover your sins for you. He is the one who does that. Uh, He put His Son on a cross. He made atonement on a cross. He washes the filth of your sins away. He did that for all who would ever believe. He took all of the sins and put them on Jesus Christ. And it's impossible for you or I to make atonement for our own sins, to pay for our own sins. But God has already done it for all who would believe in the cross. And so it is His work to do away with sin. And so to repent is actually to come to Him so that He might cleanse you, so that He might help you. Which means that in repentance, of course, you have to have faith. You have to believe that God is who He says He is in His Word. A God ready to forgive and to restore. If you think that God is uh, uh, sort of malicious and the way that um, Satan described him to the serpent who doesn't really want what's best for you, then you're going to be unable to come to God. But if you believe what the Bible says about him, then you will be able to come. And uh, Joel is reminding the people here of who God is. He says here, He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Uh, the, the word gracious here, of course, describes God as one who gives liberally uh, without expecting anything in return, giving to those who do not merit anything. The word compassion, on the other hand, uh, has the same root in the Hebrew as the word that we translate as womb. And uh, that describes the Lord as one who loves tenderly, like a mother who loves her little child. The expression uh, slow to anger in the, in the Hebrew literally means of long nose. Now that's because for the, for the Hebrews, 
the nose represented anger. Because when you're angry, you, you're, yeah, you breathe through your nostrils. Uh, but if you're of long nose, it takes you longer to get angry. Slow to anger, of long nose. Uh, of course, all of this means that God is patient. And it says he's also relenting of evil, meaning he will hold back on judgments that he's promised if there is repentance. If he says, I'm going to destroy this nation and that nation turns, then he is going to relent of evil. And because of all of these characteristics, God, again, he could say that, or Joel could say that God was ready to forgive and he does say that here. He, he tells them, even of course, to show their repentance in an outward way. Uh, uh, verses 15 through 17. Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom come out of his, of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar. And let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, uh, Where is their God? Now again, uh, we know for, from previous, the previous verses here, that the citizens of Judah, they could have done all of these things. They could have fasted. They could have assembled together. They could have uh, sanctified themselves, which means they could have become ceremonially clean. They could have wept, as it says here. And they could have called upon God to remember His covenant and, and, and say, Why would you let other nations um, uh, ask or wonder, Where is our God? They could have done all of these things without actually having this, the thing signified. Without having the inward reality. But that does not mean that they should not have done any of those outward things Anyway, so uh, the point that I'm trying to make here is that you can have both a rending of your heart and a rending of your garment. It's not one thing or the other. You can actually uh, paraphrase that phrase here in verse 13 up here as render your heart and not just your garment. Because that is the sense of Joel's overall message here repentance is inward but it flows out it has its fruits uh, some men actually say well because i don't believe in penance then that means that i don't actually have to humble myself or do anything external uh to have uh, uh to to know that i'm uh, forgiven or the, to 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 verify that my repentance is genuine because otherwise that would be legalistic for me to humble myself to god and and make restitution if i have to make restitution that would be wrong that would be just legalism but that's not the point here at all that's not what scripture teaches i mean here god wants repentance to be accompanied by fruit Gather yourselves, call the assembly, fast, mourn, weep. There is the fruit of repentance. So if a man uh, has taken something from someone, well, he makes restitution insofar as God allows him to. And if a nation has departed from God, as Judah had here, that nation 
ought to humble itself before God. And that is what Joel was calling Judah to do. That is what the church needs to continue to call the citizens of this world to do. Repent for judgment is coming. And we have to do that, of course, even in the face of the Maui fires, even as we see more and more calamities. What we do is what Jesus did in Luke 13. We say, repent lest you likewise perish. That is what the church should be saying. The church should be, should be saying continually, judgment is coming. We should not be playing games. We should be saying judgment is coming. And so repent for the day of the Lord is at hand.